So this is the uh, second Sunday in Advent. A time. Sorry, thank you. Beg your pardon. <laughs> Better. Good. Thank you. This is the second Sunday in Advent, a time when we wait expectantly to celebrate Jesus coming in humility. You know, when you wait, there's often sort of uh, different ways of waiting. Sometimes you seem as though you wait forever, don't they? You know, you don't know whether the bus is coming or not. They may have cancelled it, whatever. Sometimes you wait, and sometimes we know how long we've got to wait. According to the NHS, of course, if you go to A&E, you're supposed to be seen within four hours. But we know they occasionally miss that target, so you may have to wait longer. There are 17 more days to Christmas. Hope you're getting your shopping done. We have been waiting for around 2,000 years for the second coming of Christ. But as, Rema- as Lorraine reminded us last week, we still need to be alert and keep watching. The passage that's just been read began in those days. So what was happening in those days? Well, in Matthew, it's a bit of a funny thing because the, if you look at the end of the previous chapter, we've left Jesus having moved as a baby with his mum and dad from Egypt to Nazareth. And then we get, in those days, and we get the story of John the Baptist, doesn't it? <laughs> so there's a big gap going on between the two. And in fact, there was an even bigger gap because there were about 400 years of silence from God. From the end of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi, in the last book in the Old, Old Testament, until the arrival of John the Baptist, who springs onto the scene, there's been silence. God has not been speaking to his people. And then along comes John the Baptist. This isn't the only gospel that tells us about him, and a bit of homework. Go home and read the other two. In Mark and Luke, chapter 1, find out more about how John the Baptist came. So what do we know about John the Baptist? I won't tell you everything we can know, because there's several passages of Scripture about John the Baptist. But first of all, his parents were both from priestly families. He came from good stock. Zechariah, his dad, means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth's name means my God is an absolutely faithful one. John had a good pedigree. And Luke records that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they had a problem. The problem was Elizabeth was barren a disgrace in that area, in the Jewish nation. And because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, they were also both very old. (laughs) Amazing. And then something else happens. We know that his birth was foretold, was prophesied. Zechariah met the angel Gabriel. Zechariah, as I said, was a priest. And there are No shortages of priests in those days. There might be shortages of ministers in these days. There was no shortages of priests. There's about 20,000 of them. (laughs) And so to do this service that uh, Zechariah was doing, preparing the incense inside the temple, meant that he didn't have much chance. And so, as the Bible records, he was chosen by Lot. So here was Zechariah, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to do the bit he's been designed to do as a priest, and he gets interrupted by Gabriel. And Gabriel says, you're going to have a a child. And he appeared to Zechariah, and 
in, in declaring that you're going to have a child, what's the reaction? Fear? Yes. Surprise? Yes. And disbelief. And because of his disbelief, he's struck dumb. <laughs> the other thing about um, John, Luke records that John was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. Not on birth, but before he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Elizabeth's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a rather unusual thing, because in the Old Testament, people were filled for particular purposes. Now we rejoice that we have the Spirit available to us. But John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the birth. We know because he met, um, Mary went and visited Elizabeth, that there's about six months between them. And you remember that when Mary visited Elizabeth, she had a bit of a movement in her tummy. We know virtually nothing as he grew up about his life. A bit like Jesus, really. We hear about his birth, which we're going to celebrate. And then there's a big gap. And then there's the 12 years, when he's 12 years old and goes to the temple, Jesus. And that's all we hear. And then he appears. And this is the same with John. We know very little about how he grew up. Some people think he may have been connected with the Essene community in the desert. Some people think he may have been connected with the Qumran community, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there's no proof of that. We do know, however, when he was growing up, it was prophesied he wouldn't be drinking wine. So he certainly wasn't an alcoholic. So if he was joyful and overflowing, he was overflowing with the Holy Spirit and not with drunkenness. And he had a particular purpose, a job that God had for him to do. And finally, this job, this work, was also predicted by Malachi and Isaiah. Matthew's Gospel was written primarily, as you know, for the Jews. And so a constant feature in the Gospel is to show how the coming of Jesus the Messiah as our Saviour fulfilled many of the prophecies in the Old Testament. It said in our reading in verse 3, this is he, John, this is John, who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. I never forget going to hear Gospel. If you remember Godspell, it was a musical, a bit sort of irreverent musical, about uh, in the 60s, <laughs> 60s, 70s, and it began with, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And that's a very important job, isn't it? And that's what the job that uh, was given to John. I think the best way of uh, also pointing out is that he's also connected with Elijah. It says in uh, Malachi, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Elijah and John were very similar. They were both prophets. They both worked mainly in the desert, in the countryside, and they wore some funny clothes, didn't they? They wore garments of camel's hair and a leather belt round their waist. You can read that in the reading we had and also in Two Kings about Elijah. And it also, the best summary, I think, is in Luke chapter 1 about John. He will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. 
and he would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So how did John the Baptist go about making a people prepared for the Lord? I've got three clear points. First of all, he had a clear and consistent message. In verses 1 and 2 it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He had a clear message. He also was called John the Baptist for a good reason. He baptised for the forgiveness of sins. Verses 5 and 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the river Jordan. And thirdly, he pointed people to Jesus. In verse 11 he says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So let's just briefly look at those in turn. First of all, his proclamation, repent. What does it mean to repent? If you look it up in a dictionary, you might find something like this. To feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. Just remorse, regret. However, biblical repentance is far more than that. If you read the Amplified Bible's translation of verse 2 in our passage, it says this. Repent. And this is how it's amplified. Change your inner self your old way of thinking, regret past sins, yes, regret's part of it, live your life in a way that proves repentance, seek God's purpose for your life, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first step in our right relationship with God, is to repent, both for the Jews who were hearing John's message, and also for us. To repent means to change, to turn round from going this way, to going that way. It's completely different. It's a 180 degree change in our thinking. It's a 180 degree change in our feeling. It's a 180 degree change in our speaking and everything we do as well. It's a complete and utter change. It's not simply enough to express regret or remorse. King David, you remember, was a bit of a baddie at times. He committed adultery, you recall, with Bathsheba. And he needed to turn away from that sin and turn back to God. He realised when he does wrong that he is grieving God. He's really, God is upset with us when we sin. And David wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O Lord. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. 
When John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming up, because quite a lot of people were coming out of Jerusalem to meet him in the uh, desert where he was baptizing by the River Jordan, the religious guys, these guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew all the rules, they had all the traditions, and they added a few rules themselves, especially the Pharisees. And the, the translation in uh, the message about what G John said to them is incredible. Brood of snakes. What do you think you are doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as a father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. In the NIV, the simple answer to that is to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So yes, let each of us repent, but we need to prove it by producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Simon, when he spoke two weeks ago, spoke from Colossians 3, if you recall it. A great sermon. Go and hear it on the uh, website if you haven't heard it before. In that passage, we have another way of thinking about turning from one side, away from sin to God. We have something else. We have the idea of putting off and putting on. Let me just read a few verses that uh, Simon brought to us. Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must put off, you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if, you, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The reason we're probably quite uh, low in number this morning is I know several people have spoken to me saying, well, I'm not going to be there in the morning because I want to be there in the afternoon. <laughs> okay, I hope, and I urge you really, this afternoon we have a, an opportunity to step in that direction to turn from the way we were going and go a new way, to put off all the things that have been wrong and put on a new way, a way of forgiveness and love. Let's turn our back on those things. Scripture clearly teaches that we are one body. And if one part suffers, we all suffer together. We're in this together. Whatever's happened over the past year, we're in this together. And I just appeal to you to come back this afternoon and, and come to this service of peace and healing. I hope it will put a marker in the ground 
a milestone from which we say, thus far and no further, we're going to go with the Lord in love, in forgiveness, in kindness, in humility. John's call to repentance also had a reason for coming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And in the other Gospels, the phrase is the kingdom of God. But the Jews thought the name of God was special and shouldn't be taken in vain, so Matthew uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven instead. This kingdom was near. Jesus was close to beginning his public ministry, and in so doing, he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, which isn't a physical kingdom, it's simply where the king rules. It's not a place we go to, it's is God ruling in your heart? Is God there? As we look forward to the second coming, there will be a time when Jesus reigns as king over a new heaven and a new earth. In the meantime, we need to allow God to sit as king on the throne of our own lives and seek to extend this kingdom. The second thing was his practice. John wasn't called John the Baptist for nothing. He was constantly busy baptising those who came to him, confessing their sins. And they received baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. Baptism, as we know, is an outward sign of what's happened in here. Yeah? If you've been reborn, if you've been forgiven, if you've been given eternal life, then we take baptism as a sign of that. They received baptism. You'll be familiar with the words from 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I myself am not without sin. And I would ask you that you forgive me for anything I have said or done that has hurt you individually or added to the pain of this church. I'm deeply sorry. I'm going to repent, do that change, and make every effort to do better in the future. May that be all of us doing that. Isn't it amazing that by simply confessing our sins, God gives us full and free forgiveness? God doesn't remind us of our past failings. In fact, in Psalm 103, what does it say? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God's forgiveness is the model for how we should forgive one another when we do wrong and hurt one another. I've already read that we should forgive the Lord as the Lord forgave us. The Lord's Prayer said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God's forgiveness and our forgiveness of one another are inextricably linked. We can't have one without the other. If we can't forgive each other, God is struggling to forgive us. To talk in detail about forgiveness is another sermon, but I do just want to mention two just brief points. Just as love keeps no record of wrong, I believe forgiveness means we choose to keep no record of wrongs. Why do you keep records? Surely it's to use them, to prove what's happened. I was talking to John Withers a few months ago, and I said to John, what would you like to preach about? 
And he said to me, I'd like to preach about forgetting. One of the ways we do this is to choose to tear, tear up the record of wrongs. Do not keep a record of wrongs. Never mention them again. Sometimes we can't easily forget, but we can keep no record of wrongs. In practical terms, it may mean you have permanently delete emails that you're keeping just in case. We certainly don't raise them either with the person who offended us or with anyone else. Forgiveness and love keeps no record of wrongs over the person you've forgiven. And the other one, briefly, is this. Secondly, we refuse to punish the person whom we've forgiven. When we are hurt, the natural reaction is to see them get what's coming to them. We need to refuse to give in to this natural inclination. By nature, we find it difficult to think that people can just walk away scot-free, don't we? And we can easily lean to seeking revenge, naming their just punishment. If we've forgiven someone, then instead of still wanting them to get their comeuppance, we've got a clear alternative. The alternative is to speak well of them, not punish them. The alternative is to pray for those who have hurt you to be blessed. And the final point. He had a proclamation, a clear message. He had a clear practice, and he had this priority. His priority is this. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was very clear about his work, his capabilities, his identity, and his priority that priority of pointing people to the forthcoming Messiah, to Jesus. John, first of all, acknowledges that Jesus is more powerful than him. And then he humbles himself. He declares he's not able to carry Jesus' sandals. And he declares also that his work is waiting for him, for the coming Messiah to prepare the way for the Lord. After Jesus was baptised and started his ministry, a dispute, a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about ceremonial washing. John's disciples got rather upset and they had a competitive instinct and it came out. They came to John and said this, Rabbi, that man who was on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone's going at him. John's reply to his disciples is very telling. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He, Jesus, must come greater. I, John, must become less. 
I really struggled with that when I tried to find it in the Bible, because my translations used to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. But the new, new uh, international version says, he must become greater, I must become less. Isn't that an attitude of heart we all need? That Jesus, our Lord, becomes greater and that we become less. That people see more of Jesus in us and less of what we are and the things that we do wrong. John is joyful that Jesus' earth ministry is taking off. He continues in that attitude of humility. And the final thing is about John's message is he points to Jesus as the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Praise God that we live in an age when the Holy Spirit's power is available to each of us. Power to heal, power to convict us of our sins, power to be witnesses to those around us. Baptism speaks of complete immersion in the Holy Spirit and we are called day by day to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. But what about fire? I believe fire speaks of purification from our sins and the refining of our faith. It can also refer to judgment and punishment. The last verse of our reading says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand, Jesus's, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The separation of the wheat and the chaff speak of the separation of the righteous, those who have trusted in Jesus, from the wicked at the end time. God is far more interested in our holiness than our happiness. He wants us to become more like Jesus, full of joy, yes, but more like Jesus, holy, the Lord has baptised us with his Holy Spirit so that this can happen. Some people say, I don't like change. Well, I've got a bit of a sorry message for you, really. When it comes to our lives, that's what it's all about. The Bible speaks quite a lot about change and transformation. The word is, we become more like Jesus. We become sanctified. Two final verses. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It says in Hebrew, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's do that, make every effort to live in peace. So at this time of Advent, when we await the celebration of Christmas with expectation, but we're also continuing to wait the 2,000 years for the return of Jesus as Lord and King, whilst we wait, I believe we have a clear mandate from this passage of scripture to imitate John. We need to proclaim the gospel we need to practice confessing of sins to one another. And when people do that, if it's the first time and they genuinely repent, wouldn't it be great to have this pool open, pool open <laughs> and baptise people? 
And then finally, we need to point people to our Lord, to the Lord and King, and serve him. Amen.